morning. Let us begin with the word of prayer. Father, it has been wonderful to be in your house and to be with your people this morning. We're thankful that you have opened our eyes to the truth, that you've granted us to know the light who is Jesus and therefore to worship you rightly. And we want to continue doing that now as we consider your word, but we need your help and so we pray for it as we as we do every week. We, we ask that your spirit would help us to understand the things that we're about to see in the word that He would help us to examine our own hearts in light of these things, and that we would be moved by Your power and grace to live in light of them. And we ask for all this in the name of the Lord Jesus Himself. Amen. Please open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians 5. This morning we're completing the first section of chapter 5, which is verses 1 through 11. Last week we looked at the first five verses. This morning we're looking at the second part of that, but we'll read the whole section again. So as you're finding your place there, let's, let's stand together and we'll read 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 1 through 11. 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation." For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who, destined, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. You may be seated. Get your head in the game. If I had a dollar for every time I heard that playing baseball growing up, you all probably wouldn't have to pay me these days. Heard it all the time. Get your head in the game. Just playing without, without realizing the circumstances of the game. The situation was not on my mind. And it's, it's, it's actually comforting to to see occasionally that even major leaguers have those kinds of moments. Some of you have seen these things. They're rare, but they happen. You may have seen videos on YouTube or maybe watched games live where there's one out, there's a man on second base, one out, man on second, 
a deep fly ball to center field. The center fielder catches it for the second out, and he turns and throws the ball into the stands and begins to trot off the field. He needs to get his head in the game. He's not, he's not thinking according to the situation. Some of us have, have seen numerous times in pro football, somebody picks up a, a fumble and begins to run it in the wrong direction. The guy needs to get his head in the game. He's not thinking. This happens actually in all walks of life. We've, we've, we've seen videos perhaps or heard stories about police officers arresting a, a suspect for a brief moment against their training. They let that suspect get between themselves and their cruiser, turn their back on that suspect, and the next thing you know, you're hearing a news story about a stolen police car. He needs to get his head in the game. He's not paying attention to the situation. If you've ever seen a a woodworker with fewer than five fingers on either hand. That's a guy who wishes he had had his head in the game on a particular day. Many, many believers need to get their head in the game. They're like sleepwalkers. They're, they're functioning without regard for the situation that they're in. And the situation is that the Lord Jesus is returning just as surely as He left But that fact, the fact that Jesus is coming back is not a determining factor in how they live life. And so, they have neighbors whom they've made no effort to reach out to. They have estranged family members whom they've made no effort to reconcile with. They fret over the news. Their sense of well-being rises and falls with the changing political winds. They feel no sense of urgency to to help other struggling believers persevere in the faith. Why are they living that way? Because their head is not in the game. They have allowed themselves to function as if this world is all there is. The physical is all there is. What's right in front of them is central. They don't have their minds engaged on the reality of a returning Jesus. And so their lives reflect that. Paul's message to the Thessalonians here in 1 Thessalonians 5 is keep your head in the game. See, these these brothers and sisters in this ancient church, they were doing quite well in this regard. And so Paul says to them, keep your head into the game. And I am confident that there are many of us here this morning who are doing well in this regard, living life with your mind engaged, living in the reality that Jesus is coming back. And so... You're well poised for a message that says, keep your mind in the game. But all of us at one time or another veer into a kind of spiritual slumber and we occasionally need to hear, get your mind in the game. Live in light of the reality that Jesus is coming back. This message is the second part of of a two-part message regarding Waiting for Jesus. And we saw last week that the most important component of waiting for Jesus is being prepared for His return by repenting and trusting in Him. This morning we see that waiting for Jesus means allowing His return to shape the way that we live right now. So here, here's the main idea of this second half of, of this passage. It's the first point in your notes. Faithful disciples wait for Jesus by having spiritually engaged minds. 
They wait for Jesus by having spiritually engaged minds. Look with me again at verse 6. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. The return of Jesus, it has something to say about how we live in this world right now. Jesus said to His disciples in John chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, He said, We must work the works of Him who sent Me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. So there in John 9, Jesus uses a lot of the same imagery that Paul does in 1 Thessalonians. Light and dark. Jesus Jesus said it's day, and what He meant by that, it was day because He, the light, was in the world at the time. Night is coming when no one can work. And what He meant by that was that He was going to be leaving. So Jesus died, and it became dark. We know that He was raised. He ascended to the Father. What happened to the light then? Well, if we know our Bibles well, we know that that, lance, that, that light, in a sense, was transferred. We, we, we noted last week from John twelve thirty six that Jesus said to His disciples, Believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And Paul has said in this passage that we who believe in Jesus, we are children of light. Those who believe in Jesus, they are characterized by and energized by the spiritual life that's in Jesus. So here's something critical about our identity. While Jesus is in heaven and we're waiting for His return, we are the light of the world. Which is precisely why Jesus says that exact thing in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.14. You are the light of the world. We are the light in a world that because sin and death still exist here, is a dark world. We are the light in a dark world. Now when Jesus returns, we know because of other portions of Scripture, He's going to completely eradicate sin and death, finally and fully. And on that day, there will only ever be day because He will be our light. You might write down Revelation 21. Verses 23 through 25, those verses read this way. And the city, meaning the new Jerusalem, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light, meaning by the Lamb, will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. The new earth is going to be a land of eternal day because of Jesus' presence. So let me just summarize what, I, what I've just said here. Jesus was the light while He was on the earth. While He's gone and we're waiting for Him to return, we are the light of the world. When He returns, He will be the light of a new heaven and new earth where there will be no night, there will only be day. Now think about what this means for us right now. We are the light of a dark world. Our lives should reflect that awareness through the way that we live. And we should think about the fact that because Jesus is bringing a future kingdom 
of which we are present representatives, our presence in this world anticipates the next world. We are, as Peter talks about in his first chapter, in his first epistle, we are aliens on this world. We're aliens here. Because we are of the light. We are of the light in a dark world waiting for a kingdom of light that Jesus is bringing. This should affect the way that we live. As children of light, we don't belong to this world. We belong to a future world of of glory. All of that flows from our conscious awareness that the Lord Jesus is returning. And so here in these first verses, verses Verses five, I'm sorry, six through eight, Paul wants to reiterate there's a way of life that's commensurate with our being the light. And there's a way of life that's commensurate with being in darkness. So he indicated in the previous verses that those who are in darkness, they're the ones who are going to be caught unaware when Jesus returns. If you're sleeping when the thief comes, you're going to be overwhelmed. So you should stay awake. What Paul wrote of us in those previous verses, you're not of the darkness for that day to overtake you, meaning you're not going to be sleeping. You'll be prepared. Why? Because of who you are in Christ. You're children of light. So now he continues with those same metaphors and he he attaches behaviors consistent with those metaphors. People of, of the night, they do what? They sleep. And people of the night get drunk. So, because we're of the day, because we belong to Jesus, we shouldn't sleep or get drunk. Of course, he's, he's using metaphorical language again. What he means is, we should live like what we are, people who are prepared for the day of the Lord, people who belong to the kingdom that's coming. And the main characteristic of preparedness for Christ's return, he says, is watchfulness and sobriety. It says, let us not sleep, but let us be watchful and sober. Now, I've, I've taken those two words and combined them into one idea, which I'm presenting to you as having a spiritually engaged mind. Those who are faithful disciples are believers who have spiritually engaged minds. They have their heads in the game. They have their spiritual eyes open to the situation in which they live, which is that Jesus is coming back. Spiritually engaged mind is consciously aware of, of the return of Jesus, and that leads them to live in light of three truths. I want to give those to you. Here are three truths about which a spiritually engaged mind is consciously aware. The first of those is that the physical world is not all there is. The physical world is not all there is. They understand that this physical world exists in conjunction with Spiritual realities, things that we do in the body, have spiritual ramifications. So They believe in the existence of sin, this evil in the human heart that gives rise to evil things that we do. They, they believe in a holy God who is offended by that sin and to whom we're accountable. They believe in a horde of spiritual enemies who hate all those who are created in God's image. They believe in such a thing as spiritual death that results from our our sin and which culminates in our separation from God under the wrath of God. 
And because they, they, they understand all of these things, they understand that there is a spiritual need that man has that far outweighs any physical need that he has. He needs a Savior to rescue him from the doom of the wrath of God. Those who, are, who have spiritually engaged minds, they understand that the Creator God has a Son whom He has given to be that Savior by serving as a substitute for sinners. On the cross, Jesus Christ suffered and died for the sins of others. Three days later, He was raised from the dead so that all who trust in Him are forgiven of their sin and receive eternal life. Those with spiritually engaged minds, they don't exist with their minds engaged exclusively in the physical world, in the here and now. They've got their eyes open to spiritual things. Their lives then reflect it. Okay, so that's the first thing. Those with spiritually engaged minds, the, the physical world is not all there, all there is. Second, they have this in their minds consciously. The present world is not all there is. The present world is not all there is. A future world is coming, and and it's going to be ushered in by the return of Jesus when He comes to do two things. Jesus is coming to do two things. He's coming to, to righteously condemn sinners, and He's coming to gather to Himself those whom He has graciously redeemed so that He might make His eternal home with them. Because those with spiritually engaged minds, because they understand that this present world is not all there is, that 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 future world is coming, they understand that our actions and decisions in this present world prepare us for the next. Those who continue in dark rebellion against God in this life will be condemned in the next life at Christ's return. And they'll spend eternity in hell away from, from God's glorious presence. Those who by faith in Christ receive His gift of forgiveness in this life, they'll spend eternity with Him on a new earth in the next life. So they they understand that because Christ is coming back, this present world is not all there is. They further understand this present world is not their home, nor is it a desirable one. They are waiting for a new, better home with Christ in glory. A third thing that they they are consciously aware of is that Jesus is the center of all things. Jesus is the center of all things. They're consciously aware that God created them to enjoy Him. You know, that's that's the purpose of man's existence, is to enjoy God. But that enjoyment is what was lost to us in the very beginning when Adam sinned. And that enjoyment is what Jesus brings back to us. He gives it back to us through His work on the cross and He gives it back to us in the person of Himself. We enjoy God because we have Jesus and the culmination of this great return to a better Eden where we enjoy God eternally. That takes place when Jesus returns in the end. Christ's return sets all things right. Everything that the fall did to mar the physical and spiritual worlds, His return repairs completely. His return ushers in this future world where every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The return of Jesus is 
the event toward which all of history is moving. So to summarize, the spiritually engaged mind is consciously aware that the physical world is not all there is, this present world is not all there is, and Jesus is the center of all things. We could take, we could take all of that and boil it down again to one idea, which is this, to have a spiritually engaged mind is to see and interpret all things through the lens of a returning Jesus. To have a spiritually engaged mind is to see and interpret all things through the lens of a returning Jesus. See, those, those who are in darkness still, whose minds are darkened through sin, they're oblivious to these things. They're, they're not engaged regarding the realities of sin, the realities of eternal death, the reality of a returning Jesus and everything that that means. And for that reason, they're not going to be prepared when He comes. Now, here's a, here's a crucial question for, for all of us. Do you have a spiritually engaged mind? Does your life reflect a mind consciously aware that Jesus is returning and that that truth affects everything in this life? Your priorities, the way you spend your time, your, refle- your resources, does that reflect that your mind is spiritually engaged? Now, if, you, if you're determining right now that you don't have a spiritually engaged mind, I would say don't fret. There are many believers who go through seasons of spiritual slumber throughout the course of their, their walk with the Lord. This is fixable, and we'll talk about how to fix it in just a little bit. But right now is a good time to just ask the question, where are you? Are you engaged? Are you disengaged? Are you being watchful? Are you slumbering? Faithful disciples have spiritually engaged minds. Second, spiritually engaged minds pursue Christ-likeness. They pursue Christ-likeness. This, this makes a lot of sense if we take the time to think about it. Look at, look at the rest of verse 8. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Faith, love, and hope. These words have made several appearances here in 1 Thessalonians already. If you remember back to the very first message in this series, Paul told the Thessalonians that he regularly thanked God for their work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. We continued moving on in the letter and we found him encouraging them to pursue those things. Pursue faith. Pursue love. Pursue hope. He's doing it again here in the second half of verse 8. This is a, an exhortation to pursue these things. God produces these things in us and we pursue them. Now, some of us will associate this verse with the armor of God from Ephesians 6. Anybody think of the armor of God from Ephesians 6 as we read these verses? It's a a logical connection to make, right? Sounds very similar. What many people are, are not aware of is why Paul calls that armor the armor of God in Ephesians 6. He calls it the armor of God because God wears it in Isaiah 59. 
So this language that we find in Ephesians 6 and 1 Thessalonians 5 regarding this armor attached to certain virtues, this is, this is language taken from Isaiah 59 where God is wearing this armor. Isaiah 59 is another text describing the Lord coming in judgment against the wicked. So it has everything to do with the subject matter of 1 Thessalonians 5 and makes sense then that Paul would reach back there to that Old Testament chapter and grab some of that imagery to use here. There in Isaiah 59, we're told that the Lord will return and He will be wearing righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He puts on garments of vengeance for clothing and wraps himself in zeal as a cloak. That's Isaiah 59. In other words, this is the armor that the Lord is going to be wearing when He comes to judge the wicked. He'll be wearing it on the day of the Lord. Likely what Paul is encouraging us to do here is to put on the character of the Lord so as to identify ourselves with Him and His coming kingdom. In a, in a sense, it's to say, I'm, I'm wearing the same armor He is. I'm with Him. The, these attributes that I'm pursuing, they are the attributes of the kingdom to which I belong. Therefore, I'm pursuing them now as a matter of my identity in Jesus. Peter uses that same kind of logic in 2 Peter 3 verses 10 through 12, which we considered last week. Peter reasons this way. This world is passing away. A kingdom of righteousness is coming. We belong to that kingdom of righteousness. Therefore, what kind of people should we be in holiness and righteousness? We should be like the kingdom to which we belong. Turn with me to Romans 13. Romans 13. Don't worry, I'm not going to talk about mask mandates. There's, there's, there, are, there are things in Romans 13 other than submitting to the governing authorities. Paul reasons from Romans 13 very similar to the way that Peter does in 2 Peter. Living the lifestyle of our former lostness doesn't fit with our being in Christ. Citizens of a coming kingdom. So look with me beginning at at Romans 13, verse 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. So we're going to see Paul using a lot of the same words, imagery that he uses in 1 Thessalonians 5. The time has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. What he means by that is the return of Jesus is nearer now than when we First believed, verse 12, the night is far gone, that is, our spiritual blindness and death, far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is another one of those places where Paul is making his famous argument, live like what you are. Those who are in the light, who are in Christ, they live in a manner commensurate with that identity. We're not of the kingdom of this world. We're of the kingdom of 
the coming world. Therefore, we don't behave like the kingdom of darkness, but we behave like the kingdom where we belong, the kingdom of light. We pursue Christ's likeness, therefore. We put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why is it that he refers to Christ's likeness as armor here in Romans 13 and 1 Thessalonians 5 and Ephesians 6? Why does he call it armor? It should be obvious. Christ's likeness protects us in this world of evil. Protects our hearts, breastplate, protects our minds, helmet. If you think about this, it makes sense. Think, of, think about how it would affect your life to have Jesus-sized faith, Jesus-sized love, Jesus-sized hope. If you have Jesus-sized faith, it would save you a lot of trouble. Ungodly fear would have no factor in your life. You would not make a single decision in your life based upon the fear of man. Rather, peace would reign in your life because you would be solidly convinced that He reigns over everything. If you had Jesus-sized love, it would save you a lot of trouble. It would prevent you from saying and doing things that you shouldn't. It would, it would, it would on the positive side, provide you with the Jesus-sized joy of ministering to those who are hurting. The joy of rejoicing with those who are in their hour of blessing. The joy of encouraging the discouraged. The joy of helping the confused. The joy of calling the erring to repentance. All of that comes if you have Jesus-sized love. What if you have Jesus-sized hope? Well, it saves you a lot of trouble. Temporal trials, they're, they're always held in their right context in your mind. You never despair because you're always aware that there is a better day awaiting. These three cardinal virtues, love, faith, hope, they're representative of the whole character of Christ that we pursue out of love for Him and which guards us like a suit of armor while we wait for Him. Those who have spiritually engaged minds, that is, those, those who are conscious of the fact that the return of Jesus is imminent, well, they want that armor. They want to be identified with His kingdom when He arrives. And so, they pursue Christ-likeness. Third, spiritually engaged minds are fixed on Christ. Spiritually engaged minds are fixed on Christ. Verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Now, the way that I have these sermon points listed may lead you to believe that both pursuing Christ's likeness and having your mind fixed on Christ that those are both caused by having a spiritually engaged mind. That's not exactly right. The second, the second point is attached differently, logically, according to the grammar of this passage. So having a spiritually engaged mind, it does lead you to pursue Christ's likeness. But this point, having a mind fixed on Jesus, this one is different. Being fixed on Christ, having your mind fixed on Christ... 
That comes first. That's what leads to your mind being spiritually engaged. And we've, we learn that from the grammar of the passage itself. Look at the first word of verse 9. The word for tells us everything, okay? It tells us that he is explaining now in verse 9 the rationale for being sober and watchful, for having a spiritually engaged mind. What is it that leads me to have my mind engaged, to have my head on straight about the return of Christ? What truth or truths lead me to interpret everything in the world, everything in life through the lens of Jesus coming back? Well, there are two of them in verses 9 and 10. Remember a few minutes ago when we asked ourselves the question, do I have a spiritually engaged mind? And I told you, if you've determined that you don't have a spiritually engaged mind, I said, don't worry about it. We're going to talk later about how to fix that. Well, here it is right here, okay? You embrace these two truths, the two subpoints in your notes. Embracing these things leads to having a spiritually engaged mind. So first of all, be fixed on Christ or have your mind fixed on Christ as the certainty of your salvation. Have your mind fixed on Christ as the certainty of your salvation. Again, he writes, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. Jesus has not destined us for wrath, but He has destined us for salvation through Jesus. See, the Bible teaches that there are those who from eternity past have been chosen by God to be vessels of grace. God the Father chose them and said, I'm going to save them. Those same people have been given to the Son, and Jesus the Son then atoned for their sin. What that means is that He actually accomplished the satisfaction of God's wrath on their behalf. So the Father chose them, the Son atoned for them, then the Bible teaches that the Spirit comes along and regenerates them and applies the work of Christ to them, brings them to spiritual life, leads them to inevitable faith in Jesus. And the Spirit does that only for those whom the Father has chosen and the Son has atoned. And Jesus alludes to all three of those activities in one statement that he makes in John chapter 6, verse 37, when he said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. Many people in the church live most of their Christian life doubting the certainty of, of their salvation, doubting the foundation of their right relationship with the Lord. Listen, if your eyes have been opened to your sin and the judgment deserved by that sin, if you've been convicted by your sin, if your heart has been moved to see Jesus as your only hope, if you've repented and trusted in Him, if the Spirit has worked in you to, to see holiness as a beautiful, good thing that you want and pursue. All of that, all of that is a work of a sovereign God to transfer you from spiritual death to spiritual life, 
from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And you can't do that for yourself. If you're of the light, He made you to be of the light. Therefore, you are not destined for wrath, but you are destined for salvation on the day of judgment. Jesus died for you that you would not die yourself. Embrace that. Jesus is a complete Savior. Whomever He saves, He saves to the uttermost. He loses none that the Father has given to Him. He, you didn't put yourself into Christ, and you don't keep yourself in Christ by good works. It's all of grace. He, is, he has made your glorious future certain. So fix your mind on Him as the certainty of your salvation. Think intentionally on those things and believe those things. Second, the second thing that leads to a spiritually engaged mind is being fixed on Christ as the goal of your salvation. Fix your mind on Christ as the goal of your salvation. Why did Jesus die for us? Why did He die for us? The rest of verse 10 tells us, so that... Whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. I wonder how many of us, as we conceive of the next world, as we try to think about what heaven will be like or what the new earth will be like, if we think of it typically in terms of a world without Jesus. We tend to think of streets of gold, gates of pearl. We even think about things like there's going to be no sin. It's going to be no sickness, no death, no temptation. All of those are wonderful things, right? But how many of us conceive of heaven, think of heaven, without first and foremost primarily thinking, Jesus, I have Jesus forever in all His fullness. Listen, meditation on the Gospels is so helpful to us to rightly anticipate the coming of Christ because it helps us to get a grasp some, to some extent, what kind of man this is. What kind of Savior Jesus is. The Gospels show Jesus to be the strongest, kindest, humblest, happiest, most generous, least threatening, most engaging, wisest, most loving person ever to walk the planet. He is all virtues in infinite measure. As we read the Gospels, we find He was absolutely magnetic in first century Palestine. I mean, people who didn't even understand why He was really there. People who didn't understand that He came to set people free from sin and death and hell. People who misunderstood Him on that level, they left their lives and families to follow Him. That's how magnetic He is. That's how, how wonderful He is. And then after His resurrection, when they did fully understand what He came to do, that He came to set the captives free, well then, scores, scores, hundreds, thousands throughout the centuries have given their lives for Him to spread His message. This magnetic, strong, kind Savior Jesus is not only the one who has secured our salvation, but He is the goal of it. He is the prize. The, the, the whole of history, 
is about God gathering a people to Himself. And listen, that's as much about Him having about uh, is as much about us having Him as it is about Him having us. The, the conquering of our sin, the removal of wrath, the securing of our forgiveness, n- none of those things are the ultimate purpose of Christ's work on the cross. Those are all means to a more glorious end. Jesus did His work on the cross so that He might give us Himself, so that we might be with Him forever. We must embrace that. We must understand that is where all of history, that is where each of our individual lives are headed. So whether you're awake or asleep, Paul says, meaning whether, whether you live until He returns or whether you die beforehand, He has died to secure your eternity with Him so that you would have Him forever. That's the point and glory of everything that God has done since the very beginning. So that you would have Jesus. Spiritually engaged minds, they are so because they are fixed on Jesus. So if you find yourself this morning, you're having to say, I don't think I have a, I don't think I have a spiritually engaged mind. I'm not living in light of eternity. I'm living like the physical world is all there is. The present world is all there is. Fix your mind on Jesus as the certainty of your salvation and the goal of your salvation. Finally, spiritually engaged minds encourage and edify others. They encourage and edify others. Verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up as you are doing. And so we're reminded once again, Paul's giving instruction to people who are already following it well. What this means is that in the service of our great Savior, there's no such thing as too much. Jesus deserves more and more of our love. He deserves more and more of our obedience. And in His kindness, He gives more and more of His joy when we do so. The essence of this sentence in verse 11 is that waiting for Jesus is a team sport. Waiting for Jesus is a team sport. And we will all find at one time or another people around us and even ourselves with our heads not in the game. Our minds not spiritually engaged. By definition, that will mean that they're living in a way that shows that they're not interpreting all of life through the lens of a returning Jesus. There will be people in the church preoccupied with the physical world to the exclusion of the spiritual. There's going to be people in the church preoccupied with the present age with little thought for the next. Living as if any number of things are the center of all things instead of Jesus. For that reason, they'll not be pursuing Christ-likeness as they might. They may be stagnant in their faith. And all of this will stem from their not being fixed on Jesus. The good news is that this is fixable. All of us have had times of spiritual slumber when other people helped us to revive, helped us to get our heads on straight back in the game. And so Paul here in verse 11 is calling us to do just that. Help others. He says, encourage one another, build one another up as you're doing. And this simply entails speaking to one another the truths associated with this passage. 
remind one another that Christ is coming. Remind one another, He is our great hope. Nothing on this earth. Jesus is our hope. We belong to the world that He is bringing. We don't belong to this world. Remind each other of that. Remind each other that that all of these things should dictate the way that we live, the decisions that we make. Verse 11 implies that we should be asking right now, who among us, who among us showing signs of a mind not spiritually engaged? More personally, who needs you to help them revive, to help them get their minds back in the game? You know, a very practical way to do this is to is to do what we have what we have talked about many times in the history of providence and that is to heed the words of Hebrews 10:24 and 25 I'm going to read it to you again many of you have it memorized the author of Hebrews writes let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near Many people in the church like to take these verses and hang them on the lowest possible rung and, and use them simply to mean that we, ha- we need to be in church every week. And certainly we need to be in church. But the positive command in these verses is consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. That's what it means to be obedient to these verses. Consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. And the author of Hebrews intentionally attaches that with a sense of urgency to the coming of the Lord. He says, do this all the more as the day is drawing near. And so if as we've considered just a moment ago those couple of questions, who among us needs to be revived and who needs you to revive them? If we're, if we're going to take Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 Seriously, we should also be thinking to ourselves, how, how can I stir that person up to love and good works? How can I help revive that person, get their mind spiritually engaged, walking back in the direction of living in light of the return of Jesus Christ? So I would encourage you, think about who, who needs you to do that? Who needs you to help them? And how might you stir them up to more faithful living in Christ. You know, this happens so often and naturally at Providence that it, it is incredibly encouraging to your pastors. But I believe that we would all echo the words of Paul that we've seen over and over in First Thessalonians. We would say to you, do so more and more. Do so more and more. Jesus deserves more and more. In light of the coming of Christ... Let us do these things more and more. The return of Jesus is the culmination of all of history. Think about that fact. The culmination of history has not happened yet. It is still outstanding. It will happen when Jesus returns. How then could the return of Jesus not influence how we see and interpret everything? How could it not dictate our priorities, how we live? 
And, and when we have a taste for Him, when we can say, I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, how then can our hearts not swell in anticipation for the return of the Lord Jesus? Brothers and sisters, let's keep our heads in the game. Let's keep our heads in the game. Let's help other brothers and sisters to get their heads in the game. And, and let us be fixed on Him. Let us pursue His character. And let us point others to Him constantly. Let us pray together. Father, we thank You that You are a God who keeps His promises. We thank You that You have shown Yourself to have a perfect track record in that regard. And so we are able to, with great faith and hope, look forward to the future knowing that Christ is coming. We pray, Lord, that You would save us from the anesthetizing effects of being involved in a world of darkness. This world anesthetizes us to what really matters, to the reality of Christ returning. We pray that you would wake us up, Lord. Help us to get our heads in the game. Keep them in the game. Help us to fix our minds on Jesus as the certainty of our salvation, the goal of our salvation. And therefore, pursue Christ's likeness, Lord, and encourage others to do the same. We pray, Lord, that, that we, specifically here at Providence Bible Fellowship, that we would not be people slumbering as the day draws near. But rather, we would be sober, watchful, minds fully spiritually engaged for your glory. We pray that you would help us with this. And that knowing Jesus as we do, we would be eager to see His face. We pray these things in His name.